Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Peppis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Brian Gillis, professor of art and coordinator of ceramics in the College of Design at the University of Oregon. Gillis is a multidisciplinary artist who uses a variety of production strategies and conceptual approaches, often drawing from specific sites and related institutions. His work ranges from the production of objects and additions of multiples to site-specific installations and actions. Gillis also serves as the director of the Center for Art Research in the 510 Oak Building, which houses 22 artist studios in downtown Eugene. Gillis's distinctions include fellowships from the Illinois Arts Council, the Oregon Arts Commission, and the McDowell Colony, and residencies at the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art, International Ceramic Research Center in Denmark, and Arizona State University School of Arts, Media, and Engineering. Thank you, Brian, for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's start at the beginning. Tell us about your background and how you came to be an artist. Okay. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles in a family of people who um, I think uh, were interested in art but didn't have a background in art. And in the Los Angeles Unified School District in the 80s and 90s, there was no art. So I came to art by way of graffiti. <laughs> And uh, that led me to be um, interested in graphic design when pursuing um, my undergraduate education. And uh, when I started to pursue that, I think um, I thought a lot about what it means to be in college and how um, I felt that it was um, an opportunity to consider ways to kind of fill myself up. And so while I was there, I was really interested in taking as many different classes as I could. And I always um, took extra classes in history and science and art uh, with the idea that maybe if I filled myself up enough, I'd understand where to go uh, from there. And I think early on, I found um, ceramics and sculpture to be um, really kind of technical and um, related to things that I was interested in in history um, and um, uh, re related sociocultural issues. And I kind of pursued those from there. So what attracted you to becoming a professor of art? You know, I think um, it was simultaneously uh, the opportunity to continue to be in school and to um, be involved in critical discourse and the awareness that I could lead with not knowing mm. and use the kind of um, moment of being an educator as really a community facilitator and get down into some things that I was interested in and um, use the, um, the occasion of being a part of a community to understand things further. So tell us a little bit about some of the things that you're interested in, the issues, the topics, or the problems that you try to address in your work. You know, I think I'm, I'm interested in ways that um, historic moments of tension are still legible in existing social currents mm -hmm. and ways that access to that information is maybe limited by institutional structures or things like that. Um, so a lot of what I've been doing as of late is um, identifying gaps in uh, the, availabil the availability of information and trying to work with institutions to make that information available. So can you tell us about a specific piece or a specific project? Yeah. Um, a couple of years ago, I did a project um, at the Illinois State Museum, uh, at the Illinois, Illinois State University, 
um, that was kind of focused on trying to connect people to information related to the assassination of Fred Hampton. And uh, Illinois State University is a, um, a fed federal uh, repository of uh, various documents from um, yeah, court proceedings to FBI reports and things like that. And I found, um, so I, I had been thinking about the assassination of Fred Hampton, um, who is um, the spokesperson for the, Panthers, the Black Panther Party uh, in 1968 as a 21-year-old. And um, I'd been looking into this narrative and trying to see what was available at the libraries at Illinois State Museum and different um, libraries in the state of Illinois and found that there was no information hmm. about them, hmm. uh, about him, the Black Panthers, and various other things that were happening in the late 60s. And so um, I set out to find all that information and worked with the library there and some other libraries in the state to accession um, books that I made. And through an installation that um, offered um, the audience the experience to walk through a 15-foot um, uh, field of Illinois flags where you're feeling kind of suffocated and kind of end up in uh, this stack of books that's um, all the books that the Milner Library had related to Panthers, civil rights, um, etc. Um, and there was this little antechamber where they had access to all these books and a photocopy machine. Hmm. Um, and there was a looped image of the bed that Fred Hampton was assassinated in. Um, and there was information about how um, his assassination um, was kind of proven in the 90s um, to have been done by a, um, a joint force with the uh, Chicago police, the FBI, and the federal marshals. And two of the people who were involved in that uh, committed suicide at that time after uh, bringing it up. Um, at the end of the project, the, Mil the Milner Library um, accessioned those books, and there is uh, various people in various programs who agreed to use the books as a part of their um, classes. Hmm. So say you've begun to talk about this, but say a little bit more generally about what you hope uh, viewers or uh, participants in your work, how they'll, what, what you're hoping they'll learn or what they'll gain or what's your kind of ideal for the interaction between a viewer and the, the work that you make? I think ultimately I'm hoping that um, people are uh, afforded access to something that um, maybe are just below the surface that can inform, better inform um, an awareness of the kind of world that they're living in. Um, and I think more and more I want to do it in such a way that um, my hand is completely invisible. And I'm really thinking the ultimate manifestation of this is some sort of um, public art manifestation um, that is kind of void of an artist's name and mm -hmm. it's maybe just completely about the the archive um, but I've been thinking a lot about um, information and access to information as this kind of catalytic um, thing that affords somebody a new way to kind of consider their world hmm. fascinating fascinating so I'm going to shift some gears now and start talking about some of the other aspects of what you do mm -hmm. um, Let's talk about the 510 Oak Building. So what is the 510 Oak Building and how did it come about? 
The 510 Oak Building are the um, research spaces for the studio faculty in the School of Art and Design, which is the Department of Art and Department of Product Design. Um, before, I guess, November of 2018, um, most of us had research spaces uh, all over Eugene. Um, the majority of those were on campus in some capacity. And with um, shifting buildings and priorities on campus, we were losing some of those spaces. And um, our administration and upper administration recognized how valuable and important it is that we have those spaces. And uh, from the outside, it seemed like they moved mountains to get us this uh, building. <clears throat> And I, I think it ends up being a monument to the university's um, commitment to uh, research, uh, to practice-based research on campus and to what we do. And why is it important that the studios are not on campus? Is that important, I guess I should You ask. know, I don't know that it is. Um, I had a studio on campus, I guess, for eight years before moving off campus. And I think that our department has a, has a culture of understanding that um, faculty are available in the capacity um, of being their faculty, but also that we're independent researchers. And um, so for the most part, although our studios might be right adjacent to classrooms. I think people understand, respect, and uh, really honor that uh, we're working artists. Um, that said, uh, being farther away, I, I do think allows me as an artist to kind of get into a more focused headspace because I'm not walking through our facilities mm -hmm. and you know understanding you know this door is open and I have to send an email and you know I could really just focus on my work. Um, the other thing is I think that um, we are in some ways invisible to the community of Eugene mm -hmm. and you know uh, parking's an issue and the various things that we do are just uh, not um, porous. Um, so I think having this gorgeous building right in the heart allows us to kind of be this beacon in a really great way. And you've opened up this, the, the building during Friday art walks and things like that so that the community can become aware of what's right. going on there. Yeah. yeah. So another thing about uh, the 510 Oak Building is that it houses the Center for Art Research, or CIFAR for short, which you direct. Mm -hmm. So um, what prompted the creation of CIFAR? Well, uh, maybe three, four years ago, um, <clears throat> an alumnus uh, approached us uh, with the question of if we had resources for something related to res research, what would we do? Um, and so the Department of Art um, discussed this at length in various capacities through committees and um, faculty meetings and we just kept coming back to the idea of practice-based research and um, thinking about the difference between practice and maybe somehow um, trying to understand what art is as something that comes from a practice on, on the backside. Um, and so uh, we conceived of this center as a platform for experimentation and exchange that's rooted in art practice. And um, it feels really exciting and really fresh. I think uh, precedent for this in universities is really related to um, primarily writing about or talking about. It's through the lens of maybe art historians or critical writers or things like that. Um, a lot of them are focused on maybe art and ecology or art and technology or the arts more interdisciplinary disciplinarily, um, and this is really about s contemporary studio art practice. Mm -hmm. And um, 
we're kind of building this um, ship as we're um, flying it, so to speak. <laughs> and uh, we've conceived of it as something that has four basic tenets, mm -hmm. um, research, uh, discourse, exhibition, and publication. And we want all of these tenants to be rooted in speculative inquiry, something that is not necessarily about performing knowledge, but something where this platform affords artists, art writers, designers, whoever's engaging us to do something that they couldn't otherwise do in their normal life or elsewhere in the world. So you've spoken about practice, research practice, and the, the title is the Center for Art Research. So I think, um, there are places on this campus and places off this campus when people, if you said um, uh, practicing artists, they're doing research, people would say, research? Right. So say a little bit about how, how the collective understands this idea of art research and why that's an important idea. You know, I think the uh, with the advent of this center, it's allowed us to um, think about that more and have conversation about this more. And I think we've come to realize that in an academic landscape, mm -hmm. because of these uh, promotion and tenure moments, uh, we're creating narratives that that need to be legible to people outside the field. And um, at this institution and the two others I've been involved in, um, I've seen that what ends up happening is artists try to use the language of other disciplines without really knowing what those disciplines are. Um, there are artists who uh, make a mark and respond, and it's completely intuitive and formal. And then there's artists who have what might be called a, a research-based practice, where they do tons of academic research and tons of writing, um, and then the work comes from a plan that comes from that. Mm -hmm. And so I think a part of what's difficult, <clears throat> and I, th I think most um, fields have this difficulty because there's some, so many subspecialized but what's difficult for us is how to kind of think of our research within the academic landscape um, as something that doesn't use the language of, of other fields. Um, and so we, it's called the Center for Art Research um, to, to kind of position art as research, the practice of art as research, um, studio inquiry as research. Uh, so in other words, um, it could be some sort of um, way that an artist might be making marks and responding or things that are intuitive, that practice could be considered research, where there's um, some sort of position that's being taken, some sort of action, and some sort of um, outcome. So I know uh, that you sponsor events. Uh, there are publications that come from CIFAR. Um, one of them that's relevant that I attended to what you're talking about is it was called um, Five by Ten at Five Ten. So mm -hmm. tell us about that event. Well, you know, I I think as we gain momentum and. Uh, learn more about our capacity and what we want to be, um, it becomes more and more clear that we are not interested in performing knowledge. In, in mm. other words, we don't want people to, we don't want to invite people here um, for just the benefit of an audience. Mm. We want the way that they engage us to benefit their work. And so this event that you went to, um, the idea was we are going to invite 10 artists to speak for five minutes about their work. And that would give them the um, occasion 
to, you know, a typical talk is about an hour. Mm -hmm. It would give them the occasion to have to think about the kind of foundational principles of their practice, um, think about the form of communication with an audience, and the way that we're positioning it for those guests and for the, the audience is that this is simultaneously intended to be um, as beneficial to the person speaking as it is uh, to the audience. Um, another way that we're doing that that's really exciting to me is we've been doing this series of what we call catalytic conversations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so um, an artist or writer might be in town to do a lecture through the department, a typical lecture, and then we will give them the opportunity to work with us to have a conversation around something that's in progress. And so uh, it could be a question or um, a book that's being written or a project that they're doing in their studio or maybe just some things they're trying to get um, their mind around. And based on um, that focus, we'll assemble a group of up to 20, 25 um, people that are specifically related to what that topic is. And then it ends up being a two-hour conversation over lunch where uh, very often they're seeding the conversation with some sort of prompt or reading. Mm -hmm. um, and then our community and the people we invite to be a part of the community at that time respond to in service of that person's work. Um, I know one of the uh, pillars is publications. Yeah. So say something about that aspect of what C4 does. You know, I think with all four of the pillars, we're interested in examining uh, kind of the full breadth of what's possible. And that in case of publication, that may be um, some sort of monograph or anthology, or it could also be um, some sort of additioned um, sculptural multiples or some sort of um, broadcast um, otherwise. Um, I think with that, it's important to us that we're not just documenting work, but using the work of publication itself to kind of generate new knowledge or, or interrogate um, existing knowledge in some way. Um, next year, a lot of what, what I've been trying to do as the, as the first director is try to figure out what's possible. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've been experimenting with every form we could think of. Um, next year is my last year um, in this position and we want to experiment with what um, it means to have a theme that drives programming. And so our theme next year is going to be based on power. Mm. Uh, based on trying to understand what power is, has been, and could be ways that it manifests in the world. Um, and we are initiating something that we're calling Papers on Power. Mm -hmm. and and this is a series of commissioned papers that will that are going to start to be um, published through our website uh, first and through e-blasts. And um, I, I think the first one is slated for May. And then um, at the end of the year, there will be a publication, a, a hard publication that's going to um, have all of those papers um, in the publication. And then we're going to um, send them. Uh, to 400 people around the country, um, people, arts writers, artists, curators, and libraries as a way to kind of seed further um, conversation about power. Hmm. Fascinating, fascinating. Um, so CIFAR is uh, housed in the same space as the, the, the uh, research studios of the faculty. Of, yeah. of, is there, how do you understand the relationship between those two um, cohabiting uh, bodies of people? You know, this is a really interesting um, challenge for us because we don't see CIFAR as having a site. Mm. Um, we see CIFAR as being an amorphous fluid entity that is uh, 
re related to the brain trust that mm -hmm. is the research faculty in the Department of Art, mm -hmm. um, but is responsive and can be anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, so we've we've had some exhibitions there um, and some conversations there, but I think more and more starting next year, there's going to be uh, more CIFAR activity um, in the region, across the country, and around the world that isn't necessarily cited there. Um, that said, it says Center for Art Research on the Building. Hmm. And so I think, um, if nothing else, it's a really important way to kind of um, uh, make visible that it is something concrete and that there is a space where people are engaging these type of practices, um, but it's not bound to that site in the way a, t a typical center is. So, uh, apropos of that, I know that there's one or two events that are upon us, mm -hmm. uh, by the time this uh, video airs, they will have happened. But say a little bit about, for, just for an example of, of the, the talk that's happening tomorrow that is not happening at 510. Yeah, um, so tomorrow there's a talk uh, by Garth Clark, who is a renowned um, craft uh, writer, thinker, curator, gallerist. Um, who has been touring his final lecture called A Necessary Irritant. And his that final um, lecture is going to culminate at uh, the Portland Art Museum in a lecture that was initiated by the Center for Art Research and is in partnership with them and Eutectic Gallery. Um, and then following that, uh, he and 12, 12 other craft luminaries from around the country are going to meet at CIFAR and have a conversation about craft uh, through the structure of a hyperobject, uh, Tim Morton's hyperobject, as a way to understand craft in fresh ways that's not supplemental related to other disciplines. Um, and that conversation is going to be transcribed. It's going to be um, annotated in succession by three annotators combined with auxiliary writings, and then that's going to be um, sent out to 300, 400 people around the country as a way to seed further discourse around craft thinking. Say what a hyperobject is. Well, uh, a hyperobject is um, something that in some ways can't be discreetly known or understood by one of its uh, variables. It's so massive and uh, phasing um, and non-local um, that you can't know it all at once in a way. So um, Tim Morton uses global warming as an example of a hyper object. And uh, as I've been thinking a lot about craft um, and um, just developing more and more open questions and not uh, really um, completely able to understand it as something um, that's, it is Western and non-Western, ancient, contemporary, um, in industry, in the cottage. Um, I have had so many open questions about what craft is, and when I came to the hyperobject, I couldn't help but read th this book, thinking about craft as a hyperobject. Mm. So we put together this group of thinkers to kind of help understand the potential for the for thinking of craft through the structure of the hyperobject. Mm. Fascinating, fascinating. So. Um, it's, it's already clear from the conversation that we're having that you're not just uh, uh, a practicing artist and the director of CIFAR, but you're also an educator. Mm -hmm. So um, tell us about a course that you teach and how you approach that, the whole project of being a, a professor of art practice. Uh, a class that I'm really excited about right now is something that's industrial ceramics. 
Um, when I was coming up in ceramics in the 90s, uh, there was almost a complete loss of industry in North America and uh, the beginning of a pretty substantial loss of industry in Europe. Um, and none of us understood how to make objects uh, with any sort of industrial precision or um, using that those methods. And so for the last 25 years, I've been pursuing trying to understand this. And, you know, it's, it's actually kind of gotten to the point where it's almost like the loss of language in some mm -hmm. ways. Um, so a lot of what I did was go to um, kind of Chinese factories where they would let people see how they do things and try to talk to old timers who might have been educated in the 30s and 40s and then really just try to make things up myself. And uh, there's my generation of um, educators from the 90s have started to do this and kind of resuscitate um, industrial production related to ceramics. So um, this class right now that we're doing, uh, we're, we're working on tableware related to uh, the annual product design feast that they do. Mm -hmm. And this is a really wonderful um, uh, initiative where there's a senior studio that product design um, runs where they make everything for a feast. Tables, linens, lights, tableware, and then it's catered uh, family style and they put a bunch of strangers together in long tables and just talk and think about objects and things like that. Um, so the way that I am running this class is as an independent study consortium mm. where there's a lot of demonstrations and um, you know, the typical chalk and talk, um, but it's all about trying to model um, a professional practice where there's tons of iterative development, tons of model making and sketching and uh, research for precedent uh, related to the forms that they're pursuing. And I work with all 18 of them independently to kind of realize the first prototype of the um, of their project and then once that happens uh, there's a jurying uh, moment that happens with their peers and visitors and product design and art faculty that jury the top three designs to be the tableware for the feast. Hmm, fascinating. So Brian we have just a couple of minutes left so this will be my last question. Can you tell us about something you're working on now, a project that you're engaged with? You know, when you leave us, you're going to go down to 510. What are you going to work mm -hmm. on? Well, I've been uh, thinking a lot about Foster's Rule and the way that organisms on islands uh, grow or shrink um, generationally relative to resources. And I've been trying to figure out ways to uh, mark that relative to North America um, and kind of socio-cultural issues. And so I'm, I'm working on a series of uh, what's essentially going to be a room full of models that are disproportionately large or small relative to what you're used to seeing. And they'll be cast in um, this marbled um, stone looking um, clay. Mm -hmm. And hopefully it'll look like some sort of mud flow of objects. And when you look closer, you can see that um, some are, uh, you, you might be curious as to why the, um, the scale has shifted. Well, uh, we'll look forward to uh, getting an opportunity to see how that comes out. Thank you so much for talking to us today about your career, your practice, CIFAR, 510, and your teaching. Thanks, Paul. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I've been speaking with Brian Gillis, Professor of Art at the College of Design at the University of Oregon and the Director of UO's Center for Art Research. Thanks so much for watching.